text, one of the texts I'm most excited to be looking at in Hebrews, because I think it's, for me, one of the places in the scriptures that gets most to, most succinctly to um, the big questions of who God is, what human beings are for, and so it might surprise you, given what was just read, it might not leap off the page, but to me, this is uh, just one of the most beautiful passages in the entire scriptures, and so, um, so yeah, so that's what we're going to jump into this morning. Um, can I ask the team in the back, can you guys put the house lights on? It's really hard. Yeah, there we go. Sweet. All right, cool. All right, um, so we are starting in verse 5 this morning, and um, yeah, let me just work through this verse by verse, and, um, and yeah, we'll... Uh, We'll see what riches are here for us. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And so this is the author finishing up this long comparison that he's just made that we talked about last week between Jesus and the angels. And his final comparison is to say that God's intention all along was not that angels at any time would ultimately be the ones put in charge of his creation which begs the question, well then, who were? What, what's, what does that mean? And we're set up already, if you were listening closely last week, for the answer. But the answer that the author here gives is actually a quote from an Old Testament psalm. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This quote is from Psalm 8, which is an interesting psalm. It's, um, it's uh, a psalm that we've actually looked at here at Jacob's Well before. And what it is, is it's very much a meditation on the creation story. It's as though the creation story um, is, is being sung to. It's like a Think of it as like a musical interpretation of some of the, the theological truth and story of Genesis 1. And so if you would flip back with me to Psalm 8, I just want to look at this and why this is the author of Hebrews' response to our question, well, if not subjected, submitted to the angels, then what was God's intention for creation all along? Here's Psalm 8. I'm going to actually read it in its entirety. Again, one of the things that I love about Hebrews is that not only will you be learning this specific letter in the New Testament, but you will also, by studying, get a ton of Old Testament thrown in with it. It's sort of a two-for-one, and this is a great example of it. So let's look at Psalm 8 real quickly here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So this is the psalmist looking out at creation and saying, man, when I look at creation, think of the most beautiful scene, even, even what Kimberly shared before. Right? There's something about nature that stirs up a sense of the majesty of God if we have eyes to see that what we're looking at is a creation which a creation assumes a creator. And so as the psalmist looks out at, at the world, looks out at nature, he doesn't just see an accident. He ju- doesn't just see 
atoms that randomly collided together and just happened to have ended up being the world as we know it. He sees creation, and so he worships its creator. He says, if this is the work of one's hands, how great must that one be? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, if you remember, we have often quoted this and said that God is a God who, uh, the, the cosmos is made by his fingers, not just by his thoughts, not just by his word, but his fingers were involved. That's how intimately involved he is in creation. It's also how great he is when you think of the magnitude of galaxies that these things are, are, are done by, by, by the outer extremities of God's being the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And now this question, what is man, what is humanity that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So in, in, in light of all of this majesty, the, the psalmist is able to see through creation to a creator, but when his eyes then return to himself, the question that all of this majesty begs is, so what about me? Why do you care about me? When we stand on the precipice of the wonders of creation, when we look out at the ocean, when we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, when we look through a telescope and see other planets and galaxies beyond ours, the appropriate question is, who am I? How small, how insignificant am I? Yet the scriptures provide a very, very surprising answer to that question. And it all comes down to this yet in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him, that's humanity, with glory and honor. You have given, given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He ends in worship to God where he began. This is, these are not uh, original creative thoughts that the psalmist is having here. This, again, is a meditation on the truth of Genesis 1 and 2, where we are told in no uncertain terms that when God creates humanity, he creates humanity with a very specific purpose. And that purpose is that we would uniquely be those who, in the language of the scriptures, bear the image of God. We'll talk about this a lot in Hebrews. Get used to hearing this term. And what it means to bear the image of God is not primarily, I think, where a lot of our minds go, which is that we have some set of characteristics that are godlike. We can reason and, and we have bodies and all of these kind of, and, and we're able to, uh, to think outside of ourselves. All of that is true. I think that all of that is wrapped up, but I think the primary category that scriptures are using, given its use, especially in those times for the image of God, is that to be, to bear the image of God, to be in the image of God is to play a particular function. And that function is to represent God in the world by doing what he would do if he were physically present here. This is what an image was in those times. What, what, uh, the, the context that it comes from is imagine an ancient king who has this big, huge empire, 
And that king can't be in all places at once. And so what that king would do is that he would leave certain things in those places that represent the fact that he rules that place. That could be a temple. That could be a statue. That could be an actual person that he delegates authority to. In ancient times, all of those things were called by the same category. They were images of that ruler. And so what's extraordinary about God's purposes is that when he creates, when he creates this entire cosmos that he rules, that he has perfect authority over, he leaves only one image of himself. And that image amazingly, startlingly, is humanity. It's you and it's me. This is why when we talk about injustice and say that as Christians, we start from the assumption that we are all image bearers of God, the dignity of that, the importance of that, the beauty of that given by God is no small thing. And so the psalmist is saying, how could that possibly be the case? That we are crowned, did you hear the language here? That we are crowned, verse five, with glory and honor. This is something given, that there is a dignity given by God because we are his image. Let's go back to Hebrews 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, to humanity, he left nothing outside his control. Remember, even the psalmist goes into every bird that flies, every, every fish of the sea, everything is subjected. At present, he might be saying, along with the writer of Hebrews, you might anticipate this, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And this is referencing the second chapter in the story of God's creation of humanity. That instead of living into this identity as the image bearers of God, who are to be and to do who God would be, what God would do in creation, instead humanity chooses our first for father and for mother, but each of us in turn decides, no, we, we don't want to be that. We want to choose how we want to live. We don't want to be submitted to God. We don't want to imitate God. We want to run things the way that we want to run things. In the language of the Apostle Paul, many of you might know the verses uh, Romans 3.23, or just that single verse, Romans 3.23. It goes, for all have sinned, and I learned it growing up, and fall short of the glory of God. And the image there is, is the sense of there's the glory of God and we can't quite get there. That's not actually what the language says. Normally, I don't quibble with translations and original languages, but it's really helpful to understand what's going on there. Given how key a text that is to understanding the fallen condition of humanity, what it actually says is, for all have sinned and lack the glory of God. We lack it. We were, remember, we were given it. We were crowned with glory and honor. 
And in rejecting our role as image bearers of God, it's as though we took those crowns off. And now we lack something essential about what it means to be human because we have intentionally chosen to move away from, to put down that original glory and honor. And so what happens in all of that is instead of God being ultimately in charge with his representatives, humanity, obeying him and representing him in the world and creation flourishing as a result. Instead, you've heard me say this before, instead the world is turned upside down and now you have humanity with God under our feet saying, God, we want nothing to do with you. We know how this runs. And actually what we end up doing is we serve the very things we were meant to rule. And so we put money and pleasure and comfort and all of these created things We pursue them. We give our lives to them. We give our energies to them. We give our obedience to them. We say, what is it going to take to get you? Because if I had you, I would have everything. And this is the essential human condition where everything is flipped upside down. And so creation suffers as a result. Humanity suffers as a result. And this is the situation into which Jesus steps Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to humanity. The world is a mess, in other words. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the gospel. One of the simplest synopses of the gospel. But again, to to our ears, to those of us who maybe been around church for a while, that, that probably doesn't quite sound like a gospel summary. So let's work through it. What this is saying is that while we don't see the world flourishing, because humanity has not taken up its role as image bearers, we do now see that something has fundamentally changed. We talked about this last week, and I won't go all the way back through it, but one of the most essential things that the writer of Hebrews is going to try and convince us about Jesus is that Jesus was not God and then came down, played human for a little while, and then went back to being God. No, Jesus took on flesh, became what we were meant to be. And because of what he did, has now ascended back, yes, to God's authority, to God's right hand, as the prior chapter said. But he does it as a human being. He does it as one who has become like us in every way and remains like us in every way. And so when it says, while we don't see all of humanity with creation under our feet, we do see him for a little, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Do you hear what that's saying? It's saying we do see, instead of just saying Jesus, it says we see the one who became human. We see the one who took on the image of God as a human being, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, who had that glory and honor restored to him. This is why he's the second Adam. This is humanity's restart. This is This is the the coming again of hope that humanity's role might actually be fulfilled again. 
who because of the suffering of death was given these things so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus took on the role of what it means to be human. He took on the human vocation is what Hebrews is trying to get us to see. And he lived perfectly into it. And he didn't live perfectly into it just so that he might be an example to us, though he is. He didn't take it on just to show us God's great love for us, though he did. He took that on so that the creation project might be completely restarted in him. Listen to this next verse. For it was fitting that he, that's Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist. That's borrowing from the theology of the first chapter. Jesus was with God before all things. All things are moving toward worship of him. It was fitting that Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For it was fitting. Why was it fitting that this is how God accomplishes salvation through suffering? It was fitting, first and foremost, because this was God's intention all along. The coming of Jesus and putting on human flesh was the ultimate sign that God did not abandon his original promises for humanity. It was fitting in the sense of if God had just zapped it, if God had just winked at sin, he would have violated all the purposes that he had given. He would have violated his very own character. So it's fitting because it remains within the perfect plan of God, that God was always committed to ruling the world through human beings, and he has not abandoned that plan by sending Jesus. That's one reason why it's fitting. It's also fitting, as the verse goes on, that it was done through suffering. That that was the only way, that God himself had to put himself in the way of suffering in order for the world to be set right side up. We'll get back to that in a second. But I love how it describes what Jesus was here to do. Do you hear it? It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Check out this, this little phrase here. In bringing many sons to glory. We might say, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Now, we hear a phrase like that with, with our modern Christian ears and bringing many sons to glory. We sing that in some of our worship songs. What does that mean? It probably sounds like in Jesus bringing people to heaven, maybe. Bringing people up to glory and bringing people to glory. And look, that's true. But I just want you to see how much more beautiful the text is here. Think of everything that we just said. What does it mean to say that Jesus is bringing many sons and daughters to glory? Given the context of Psalm 8, given the context of Genesis 1, it's saying through Jesus, he uniquely is able to help us retake up those crowns that we all laid aside and to give us, to restore us to glory. One of the subtle misunderstandings that we can have about the message of Christianity, about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is to say Jesus did all of these things so we don't have to. 
And that's true in certain ways. It's untrue and even dangerous in other ways if we take it to an extreme. Look, you could not die for your own sins. You could not live a perfect life that is now accounted to you because of what Jesus did. But to say that Jesus did all that so that you can just chill, so that you can lay back and do whatever you want is to completely misunderstand what he was here to do, what the gospel is, and what Christianity essentially preaches. That's called cheap grace. That's saying that Jesus got you off the hook so that you can keep living life exactly how you want to live it. And don't you hear that he wouldn't be good if that's what he came to do? Because that's why you're in the mess you're in and that's why I'm in the mess that I'm in. Because our only choice sometimes feels like making a mess of our lives. Our only choice feels like me being all about me. And if he came to get you off the hook to no longer make you feel guilty for that and then leaves you to that, is that really good news? You see, Jesus, here's how some of the ancient church fathers, I think of Athanasius um, on our final Sunday here in Black History Month. Athanasius is just one of my absolute favorite church fathers. He was uh, in Egypt, Christianity, uh, Black Christianity, African Christianity, far uh, goes way further back than American Christianity. Don't get that twisted. We could do a whole month just on how, how absolutely crucial, especially North African theology was to the preservation of orthodoxy early in church history. And one of those uh, key the- theologians of that time was Athanasius. He was called Athanasius Contramundi which means Athanasius against the world because there was a time in which he was the only one defending the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus. He wrote a very important early work called On the Incarnation. In that work, he's making the argument that Hebrews 2 is making. And what he says is that we misunderstand what Jesus came to do if we think it's merely him instead of me. No, what he says is Jesus became what we should have been in order to become, in order that we might become what he now is. Let me read that again. Jesus became what we should have been in order that we might become what he now is. Jesus, because of his obedience to the Father, is now crowned with glory and honor. He now sits at the Father's right hand. He is now fully We talked about this last week, the son of God in all the fullness of what that designation means. Athanasius said he came to bring us into that glory as well. He came to restore us to what it actually means to be human. Let me give you uh, three implications of this that, that just jump out at me. One is that I think so often we misunderstand obedience in the Christian life. That we think that Jesus came to free us, to rescue us from the penalty of our sin. And that now it's like the least we could do is obey him, do the stuff he wants us to do, be like helpful to his purposes in the world. And we know that obedience, that faithfulness is really hard. And that's kind of the point. Like Jesus takes away all the fun stuff, all the stuff. Hello, my seven-year-old's doing his hat. Um, he, he took away all the fun stuff. 
He took away all the cool stuff, and that's the point. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, is until the language of our hearts becomes something different than that soundtrack, I think obedience, we will always struggle to listen to the word of God, to listen to teaching and preaching, to listen to discipleship course and actually see that stuff move from here to here. It will never happen if we believe that obedience is mostly about paying God back for a debt that we could never pay back. That obedience is hard primarily because God chose all the stuff that actually makes life fun and knows that if we don't do that stuff, that that's the ultimate sacrifice and the best way for us to show him just how much we appreciate what he's done on our behalf. Now that might sound silly, but how many of us, is that actually the language of our heart when it comes down to the moment where we're either gonna choose obedience or we're gonna choose disobedience? We're either gonna give in to the temptation or run from it, where we're either gonna forgive or hold on to it in bitterness. We're either gonna sacrifice for others or do what I wanna do anyway. Is we say, oh, here we go again with obedience being so insufferably hard. No, what obedience is, is a God-given gift to finally turn away from the self-serving mess that we have created around us and to step into what God actually created us for. Because here's, here's, here's one of the things that I want you to go away with is that to be obedient to God, to become a disciple of Jesus, to follow him obediently is to not be something subhuman, like, oh, we're the miserable ones in the world while everyone else is living the good life. It's not to become subhuman. It's also not to become something other than human, as though we go, oh, now I'm, I'm just like a weirdo doing what no one else really wants to do while everyone else gets to live a normal life. Nor is it even superhuman, as though, oh, when I do, uh, when I am obedient, man, it's, it's like the, the most heroic act in the world. No, obedience is simply stepping into, oftentimes for the first time in our life, what it actually simply means to be human. And that everything else we do is subhuman, is dehumanizing of ourselves and others, is, is something other than what it means to be human. That obedience is actually stepping into what we were created for. Now, here's the reality, though, as we think about Jesus in this passage. Remember, it said, for it was fitting that he would accomplish this through suffering. Here's where my mind goes, is to a quote that I roll out every now and then. It's my, like, it's like my go-to quote if I was like a tattoo guy, which, shocker, I'm not. Uh, this is probably what I would like uh, put on me because I just think about this quote all the time. We're going to try and put it up, see if it works. This is from Herbert McCabe, who as best as I can tell is not exactly a, a major figure in Christian thought in the last century, but apparently was like a Catholic uh, journalist of sorts. This is what he says in an essay in a book called God Matters. He says, the crucifixion in this sense is the supreme expression of Jesus's humanity. We have made a world in which there is no way of being human that does not involve suffering. Jesus accepted the cross in love and obedience, and his obedience was to the command to be human. Not Adam, but Jesus was the first human being 
the first member of the human race in, hum, in whom humanity came to fulfillment. That should be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The first human being for whom to live was simply to love, for this is what human beings are for. This is why when we encounter Jesus, in whatever way we encounter him, he strikes a chord in us. We resonate to him because he shows the humanity that lies hidden in us, the humanity of which we are afraid. And then this is the line, this is the phrase, this is what I want. Absolutely highlight it in your mind as you walk away this morning. Jesus is the human being that we dare not be. Obedience is stepping into what it means to be human. But we live in a world. We live in an environment. We breathe air that is fundamentally opposed to being truly human. We live in a dehumanized world. And so every act of obedience often gets some kind of push against it. And instead of seeing that as, oh, I'm pushing against what I actually want, what would actually be good for me, what would actually be joy, we need to realize we're pushing against the mess of millennia that we are complicit in, that our very bodies are subjected to. And yet every step into what it means to be truly human is a step further into the goodness of God, is a step further into the presence and provision of God by his spirit. But here's what I think that we can do, that we can say, well, because obedience is what it means to be truly human, man, every time you obey, it's just gonna be, it's just gonna be angels, choirs, and it's gonna be amazing, and, and you're just gonna feel this overwhelming joy when we say, man, so often obedience feels the exact opposite. But if, again, if we understand why that is, if we, if we define terms properly, right? Like if we set expectations well, and say, yeah, it is hard, but it's not hard because God is robbing you of something that is of greater joy. It's because God is removing something from you that is actually part of your dehumanization, that is part of the death that has been at work in you. And yes, it is an act of faith to say, God, I don't feel the life at work in me always, but I do believe that as I put these things off and put on new ways that I am stepping into who you always created me to be. You see, because if the first thing is that we need to reconceive that obedience is actually us becoming truly human. The second thing that I would say is that this passage is very clear that to be truly human assumes suffering. Now, I just said a little bit about why, because we're constantly pushing against these things that are just part of the environment that we are in. It's also the reality that we have a world system that is constantly trying to pull us back into its own terms, pull us back. We have an enemy, right? Even my wife and I have been talking about this this week, how the enemy works on our doubts, how the enemy works on lies in order to pull us back into even the lie of God is withholding from you. God doesn't want your joy. God is a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want your good. Why would it be so hard to obey? if that's what it actually means to be human. So the enemy is working on us. The world is working on us. Our very flesh is working on us. 
And this means that our lives are so often characterized by suffering. Look, the other reality here is that, yes, there's the suffering of obedience, but there's also just the suffering that comes because of how broken this world is. And look, I don't understand all these mysteries, but I know that there are so many in this community, we even talked about it during the worship this morning, that are weary with the year that we have had and all the things that have been thrown into it. Look, that's a result of the fact that we do not yet see things under Jesus' feet, under humanity's feet. Instead, we are ruled so often by the mess of this world. We are ruled by a global pandemic. We, we are subjected to injustice. I appreciate at least that Hebrews is being honest about that condition, that we don't yet see all things. Makes me think of a wonderful story. I would commend this to you. Brian Stevenson, who's a great modern-day civil rights leader. He uh, is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, defending people on death row. done much more than that, uh, especially as as folks have come alongside him, and and he's become a a prominent voice. A Christian man, a lover of Jesus, would recommend just about any conversation, any podcast he's ever been on, but he kind of rose to prominence through a TED Talk. Those trendy TED Talks. I don't know if TED Talks are still a cool thing, but he has one of the most watched TED Talks of all time, would commend you to go watch it. It's 15 minutes, as they all are. And in that, that talk, um, he mentions that one of the great privileges when he was growing up is that his, I believe is his, either his mother or his grandmother, maybe both of them, uh, knew Rosa Parks somehow. And she would come to, to their house every now and then, and, and they would invite, or maybe as actually a friend of his family. Sorry, I'm getting the story wrong. But he would be invited as a young child to come and hear Rosa Parks and other civil rights leaders just kind of chat about their experience. And, and he would just sit there and listen. And then one time, they sort of turned to him, and they said, um, this was when, when he was much older, and they had built relationships. They said, so, so what are you passionate about? What do you want to do? And he told them, here's what I'm passionate about. I want to see uh, you know, um, capital punishment done away with. I, w- I want to see more, more fair sentencing and all these things. And Rosa Parks just kind of turns to him. And she sort of, in her knowing, sage way, she just says, and if that's what your life is about, you're going to be tired, tired, tired. And then she says, and that's why you're going to need to be brave, brave, brave. And for me, that's so much of following Jesus. Is Yeah, we're tired, tired, tired. And it takes, it takes being brave, brave, brave. And yet the reason why we resonate to Jesus, the reason why we resonate to someone like Brian Stevenson is is not because they're doing something other than being human. There's something in us that resonates to them and says, that's what life is actually about. And if you talk to someone like him, if you talk to Rosa Parks, if you talk to someone who's been faithful over a long time, if you talk to a tired parent where the days are long, And you say, is it worth it? There is some cosmic sense in which the soul cries out, I know it is, even when I'm tired, tired, tired. Unlike the apparently joyful person who has utterly spurned the ways of God, who is running life exactly as they want, who apparently is enveloped in the good life, that you allow, you you get somehow to the soul and that soul 
is actually tired. That soul says, I'm not sure it's worth it. That soul is in doubt. And yet we so often go by external appearances. And what Hebrews is going to try and get us to is to say, there's something so much more deeply true about what it means to be human than externally how my Instagram looks, than externally whether other people are, are jealous of my good life. And that is only found when we step into the things of God, when we are brave, brave, brave. Final thing that I would say here is in all of this, what is our provision? And the rest of Hebrews will talk about this more than this passage does specifically. But this truly human one, the human that we dare not be, is reigning and ruling now. And yes, we are waiting for all things to be put under his feet. And look, the promise here is that one day what was true about Jesus in his resurrection will be true about every square inch of creation. That all things will go from death at work in them to life at work in them. I said this last week. The one question is, will you be part of that which is brought back to life or will you be part of that which is subjected as an enemy under Jesus' feet? But the bold guarantee, what Jesus reigning and ruling now means is that he has all power and authority. And if you ask the question, what is he waiting for? Amazingly, the scriptures answer. You know what the answer is to what is he waiting for? Scripture's answer is you, that's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for us. It says that the only reason why Jesus delays as gut-wrenching as it is, as agonizing as it is, is so that one day we may fully participate in the renewal of all things where every tear is wiped away, where every wound is healed, where all is made right. And so as hard as life is now, the opportunity to repent is the reason why God is exercising patience. But here's what I want you to hear. Even more than the hope of that promise is the hope for right now, which is that the one that you approach, we are told again and again in the Hebrews, boldly approach the throne because of who is sitting on it. It is one of our own. It is one who has suffered like you suffer. It is one who was tired, tired, tired because he was brave, brave, brave to the uttermost. That is the one who comes alongside you and I in our suffering. I was talking to someone this week going through something that I would wish on absolutely no one that none of us would wish on anyone. And I said, I don't know why this is happening. It makes me angry that you're having to walk through this. But I have to believe, because if this is not true, we should all be out. I have to believe that the one who is sitting and reigning over even this situation is weeping with you in it. Knows the pain of loss. Knows the pain of sin and death and illness and weakness. Saw his best friend died and weeped over it before, yes, doing a temporary miracle because Lazarus would die again. And yet Jesus, when encountered with just how messed up this world is, when he encounters human beings that are destroying themselves and others, he is moved by that. He weeps over that. He does not have a theological, stoic answer and response to all of that. 
He's moved by that. And so what Hebrews will steadily over these next couple chapters move us towards is that that's the one that we approach. And so if your image of God, especially in the midst of difficulty, does not include a weeping human being sitting at his right hand, you have missed the whole significance of why Hebrews again and again will move us to say, remember who's reigning and ruling now. Remember the one that you approach. It's a human being in human fr- It's one of us. I think too often I'm one of those people that has uh, uh, let the government into my home by putting one of those Google things. Um, judge me, whatever, you know, Alexa. And sometimes it's, sometimes I, I, I think this actually often. And um, I think that so many of us think that God is like a cosmic Alexa. Where it's like, I can say things and ask questions and, and uh, on, on the little Google thing, the lights light up, like the four little lights when you're talking. And it's like, oh, it's responding to me. And maybe it has some good information that it can provide back. But at the end of the day, it's really good to remember that it's just a computer. In fact, we have neighbors who refuse to call their Google or Alexa or whatever it is by a personal name because they're like, let's remember it's a computer. So they literally change it so that they just say, hey, computer, right? Because there's something weird about about beginning to relate to that as though it's actually a human being. Because we know at the end of the day, it don't care about us. If anything, it might actually be a little bit of a danger to us because it's gathering all this information about us that may be used for our good or our harm. How many of us see God that way? Eh, When I talk to him, I don't know. Is he gathering information about me? Maybe the lights go off. Maybe I have some sense that he's listening. And maybe every now and then I get information back. But I'm not sure really what's beyond that. I know that he's disembodied. I I know that he's different than me. What if we really believed that on the other end of our prayers was one just like us? Was one who can still feel tears on his cheeks when we go through what we go through? One who actually has our perfect good in mind. Who isn't gathering information about us to our destruction, but is moving closer to us that we might relate to him ever more intimately ever more vulnerably and truly such that when he responds we might know it is coming from a place of perfect good and therefore trust it fully i don't know what you think about god but if it doesn't include the suffering savior who right now seeks to know you to relate to you We are leaving on the table, I think, God's primary provision for us in the waiting as we wait for all things to be put under the feet of Jesus. We are told to boldly approach the throne to find grace to help in time of need. That's where we're headed in Hebrews. Those are the words of Hebrews. We have one who knows what it means to be tired, 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 who is brave, 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 so that now we can follow him in that difficult task. He is bringing us to glory. Will we follow him today? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you have made it possible for us to actually be truly human. God, I pray that even this week, Lord, my hope for our church is that as we are called through discipleship course, especially to approach you, that we would approach you not as a disembodied, a strange other, but Lord, that we would approach you as the Savior who knows perfectly what it's like, 
to be where we are, who empathizes with precise accuracy with our situations. Lord, as uh, we are tempted to move away from you, as uh, we feel the the allure of the the quote-unquote good life, of the American dream, of whatever it would be, Lord, that we would hear a better song, that we'd hear a, a better promise, that we would see the false promises of one and the amazing promises of the other choice, Lord, the false promises of disobedience, the beautiful promises of obedience. Lord, all of this is mere theological ponderings, Lord, if it doesn't land practically in our lives. So I pray that this week we would find ourselves considering these things and moved to take different action because of them. Lord, thank you for the beauty of the gospel, that this indeed is good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to do now is uh, send you into CCG, Breakouts, Community Care Groups. If you're not in a community care group, uh, have never been connected to one, I would really encourage you to just either stay in the lobby uh, or to to come to the connect room so that we can connect you to one. Uh, For this week, we just encourage you to maybe share, I, I would imagine that, that many of you, if not most of you, are involved in the D course. So maybe share how that's been going, how connecting to God's been going. Maybe share anything that you were prompted by uh, in the text this morning. Um, we've sort of allowed the CCG leaders to use that time as they see fit. But please, please, please do stick around for that. Um, really important that we have that time to connect together. So uh, I'll let Jalen now do his thing to, to get you into those rooms and, uh, and we'll see you on Wednesday at C-Course.